0: we see it with the best athletes in the world, the best competitors in the world. They're not healthy. That's why they don't have a very long life expectancy. And when I stand up and explain this to people in presentations, they they're absolutely blown away with the fact that the average lifespan for an NFL offensive lineman is 55 years old. Right? The average lifespan for a competitive marathon runner when they start in their 40s is only 55. So when you start to see these really challenging things that are happening to people's long-term health they're doing it in a pursuit that might gratify them at that time but they're not looking at scaling it so that they can do this for a lifetime and that's where we've tried to come in from a microdosing standpoint is how do we deliver that same experience in a shorter more consistent way so that you get the overall health benefits mechanically metabolically neurologically, and probably most importantly, at the cellular level.
1: Welcome to This Thing Called Movement, a podcast exploring our relationship to movement and how it impacts every other aspect of our lives. I'm your host, Marie Janicek movement guide and co-founder of Evolna, an intuitive movement lifestyle company helping people create a more fulfilling relationship to their body and self. Through my work in the fields of dance and fitness, I've always been deeply connected to movement and fascinated by how it shapes us. Join me as I dive into conversations with esteemed professionals from a variety of fields and backgrounds. Together we'll gain insight into their personal movement experiences, the transformations that resulted, and how movement has affected their lives at large. I hope this podcast inspires and empowers you to create a more authentic relationship with your body as you experience the tremendous ripple effect movement can have on all other facets of your life. New episodes will be released on Friday mornings every other week. In the meantime, enjoy. I am thrilled to present today's guests, Dan Tatton and John Sinclair of Seven Movements. Both Dan and John are elite performance and health coaches, authors, and serial entrepreneurs. Together, they founded Seven Movements, a health company utilizing the concept of microdosing movement as a long-term health intervention. Today, we discussed what microdosing movement means and why it matters, how popularized fitness and exercise are actually reducing our lifespan and longevity, and the gaps between health, fitness, and medicine. This episode is a powerful one, as Dan and John debunk many of our assumptions and beliefs around exercise, giving us relevant scientific evidence and practical advice to help steer our choices in healthier directions. So without further ado, let's tune in. Dan, John, it is so great to have you guys here with us today. Uh, I've gotten the pleasure, or I've had the pleasure of being able to work with you guys in a number of scenarios. And... uh, the work you're developing with Seven Movements is really unique, really interesting, and I'm really excited to be able to explore it a little bit more here today.
0: Cool, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you.
1: So I'd love for you to tell our audience a little bit about your personal journey up until this point, both as individuals and then what led you to create Seven Movements as a company and some of the points that inspired its development.
2: Sure, John. Why don't Why don't you go first? Okay, cool.
0: I've been a lifelong mover uh, ever since I was a little guy. I couldn't stay still, from climbing on top of refrigerators to doing anything possible to stay involved in movement, and um, it led me to a lifelong pursuit of sport, including going to the University of Alberta and getting my degree in physical education and studying sports sciences. And from there, I jumped right into the world of personal training and coaching. And um, I've been doing that now for twenty five years. And, yeah, it's been quite a wild ride because the last twenty five years, there's been massive shifts in what's happened in the in the fitness industry and now in the health and medical space. And so it's pretty cool to be able to um, kind of explore movement with many different populations with many different people that need it because without movement we die it's that simple so i think you know in the past 25 years of things that's been really interesting to me in studying this is that no two people are exactly alike they may have a similar pursuit but their journey to get there is a little bit different and that's been the same for us from a career standpoint, but even how we have developed this business.
2: So,
1: mm, I love that, Dan. I'd love to hear from you next.
2: Well, it's it's an interesting introduction from John because mine follows such a similar path. Really, I I too am a Saskatchewan boy from from Canada, and and uh, I grew up on a farm, and um, so moving was pretty much a a daily ritual for me, climbing trees and getting into all kinds of trouble probably driving my parents nuts Um, (laughs) and then and then evolved into you know uh, participating in competitive sports and hockey and football and pretty much anything that I could get involved in I'd I'd be involved in then when ended up going to uh, University of Alberta much like John did the exact same program actually
1: you guys um, weren't there at the same time though, correct? We
2: weren't. John's much, much older than me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, glad we got that out of the yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> uh, actually
2: not that much old, but he was a little bit ahead of me in that program. And and um, and then I went ahead and got my uh, Bachelor's of Education as well, because I thought I was going to be a teacher. And then got involved uh, actually at the same club as John. That's where we met in in Edmonton doing personal training and, and coaching. and. Uh, have been involved in the industry in one way or another, whether it be a uh, coaching individual clients or working with, uh, with kids and teams, or now running this business seven movements with John um, for, I guess, I'm probably closer to 15 to 17 years. So not quite mm-hmm. up, up where uh, John is with 25 years. But, um, but yeah, and then I guess to, to move into the second part of your question with how we started seven movements. It really, uh, it started when, um, well, John and I met in Edmonton at at world health club, and then we kind of went our separate ways for a while. He, he went to Florida and I actually moved to Dominican Republic for a year to teach health down there. And, uh, when I got back, it, I started thinking about the industry, the, the fitness industry that I was involved in and, and how we were sort of missing out on large chunks of people and, and reaching large chunks of people. And it was showing up in the data like people weren't. We had about one in five people actually hitting exercise targets, and that number stays pretty much the same today. And Seven Movements started when I posed a challenge to John, and I started talking about my my baba. For all the Ukrainians out there, that's a that's my grandma. And, uh, she was a gardener and I basically posed this challenge to John. I said, John, there's no way in, in the world I would get Baba to uh, spend time in the gym ever, uh, mm-hmm. but she loves to spend time in the garden. And if we could have got her a program that would have helped her feel better in the garden, I know she would have done it. And how quick could we make that? And John and I, of course, started bantering back and forth. And he came back to me, he's like, I don't know, I think we do about seven movements. And, and that's kind of how Seven Movements was born. And, and our first book was uh, written, it was called Seven Movements to Keep You Gardening for Life. And it was just a really simple guide, essentially, for anyone who wanted to spend time in the garden that would take them through a seven movement sequence that would help them prevent pain from their daily gardening ritual. So that's really kind of where seven movements started. And now it's evolved into other applications of this idea of microdosing movement, which I'm sure we'll get into uh, in this podcast.
1: Yeah. Well, actually that leads me into that question because that's one of the core points of your focus is microdosing movement. And I'm sure that's a term most of us are unfamiliar with. So if you could please explain what that actually means and what it entails.
2: John, I'll let you take this one.
1: Okay, thanks.
0: Microdosing is really the best way to kind of create an analogy for it would be like, your doctor gives you a prescription for a medication. And that prescription might be 300 pills, and you're going to take one pill every five hours, three times a day. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And so that's a micro dose of a massive dose, knowing that when you need to finish your antibiotics, that massive dose has created some sort of biochemical change in the body. Well, movements isn't much different. We have to provide a dose of movement where the body has to absorb forces, we get about mechanical change, which converts into a chemical change. And then we have different adaptations that happen in the body over time. And we call that a program, right? So instead mm. of like a bottle of pills, it's done over a period of time. However, traditionally, most dosages or each pill I take have been usually prescribed in around 45 to 60 minutes or longer. You know, so when someone says, Oh, you need to exercise regularly. Well, mm. that's usually a dose of about an hour, because for whatever reason, the clock we could correlate time with this is how much i should do so ritualistically and prescriptively doctors would say well I'll do about a half an hour an hour of movement this many times per day and that's kind of where coaches and and trainers kind of got started with the whole this is how long it's going to take you to do a workout then when we started charging For said prescriptions, right? It only made more sense. Well, we charge by the hour, so we're going to do an hour's worth of work or put an hour's worth of dosage in. And we now know that in some cases, for most people, that's not sustainable and it's not doable. We just don't have enough time in the day, but also that dosage might be too high for too too many people. And the evidence in people not attaching themselves to that type of dosage is very well documented. Microdosing really is if we can take small bouts of movement more frequently and consistently, they will aggregate up into a similar dosage that you might do on a day-to-day basis. Instead of taking one big pill, we're just taking smaller pills along the the time. Mm. And so the goal would be is if I could get you to engage in a movement sequence of seven different movements, more frequently throughout the day, it's going to aggregate into the same health health outcome at the end of the day. It's just that that dosage is going to be a lot smaller, i.e. the micro dose of it, but it'll allow for the same chemical change that's going to happen that actually is the benefit from exercise itself. And mm. so, Any type of exercise we do or any type of movement that we do, there's some sort of chemical change that happens in the body. And we don't think of it that way because most of fitness is about what are the macro changes, right? Like what did it do to my muscles and what did it do to my mechanical system? And in reality, that mechanical system, while it adapts, it also creates these great chemical changes that happen in the body that foster health.
1: Yeah, one of the first things I'm thinking about in response to that is you mentioned that when you're microdosing and you can s- sort of build up that aggregate dosage throughout the day through these small chunks, that it ends up being equivalent to that large dose of time that's, you know, 45 to 60 minutes. But in my experience, there's actually a significant difference in that. And I think that there have to be some benefits that are also slightly different, if not unexpected, and in some ways, possibly even better when you are microdosing, because, you know, you said this right as we started and as you introduced yourself that movement is life. Our health does not thrive without it. And, you know, even in my experiences, both personally and with the clients I've worked with and the students, when we sit all day and then we try and Nourish ourselves in that hour. Yeah, that is great. But I personally found there were so many more benefits to that microdosing strategy, which I was kind of intuitively applying for myself. And time and time again, when clients were asking me for support in their day to day life, that's where I was directing them. Because uh, for me, it made such significant changes, not in those aesthetic ways that most people are chasing, but in these deeply innate ways of just feeling lighter, feeling more focused, feeling more refreshed and clear, not having pain anymore, you know and and these are things that I think most people assume they're going to have to live with, exercising or not.
2: yeah. You know? well, and I, I, if I can jump in there, John, I, I think one really additional benefit that just or something magical really happened around the time we started seven movements, and that's that, the hard science really caught up with what we were intuitively talking about as coaches, anyways. This importance of moving frequently throughout the day and breaking up those long periods of stagnation throughout the day where we're just sitting or doing nothing. So, just the fact that the, the big difference that you get when you start micro dosing movement is not only do you get, you know, this aggregated movement of probably 60 minutes a day that you need, but you break up those. For long periods of sedentary behavior or or sitting around, and there's so many benefits to that that we could talk about. That um, really came to light in, like I say, the hard science around 2014 2015 when we really started Seven Movements and we started seeing all the headlines in the in the newspapers who were taking you know you know and they always take the scientific study and they say sitting is the new smoking. Um, and and that kind of thing so we're starting to see that but it was really referring back to the the studies that were showing that if you spend long periods of time stagnant or or sitting it doesn't really matter how much you're moving before or after those times from a long-term health perspective we need to break up that time and and fit little bouts of movement throughout the day so it's kind of a with seven movements starting and that coming into play was just kind of a happy accident. And, and we, we started to think about more practical applications of this idea of micro dosing movement beyond just making it uh, something for, that helps people connect with exercise in a, in a different way. It became really practical in the sense that, Hey, like this is an intervention that can really help people's uh, longevity and thinking about those like long-term health benefits.
3: Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, fascinating too, because, you know, you mentioned that the statistics on how many people are actually active in some form of consistent exercise or physical activity, the numbers are shockingly low. I remember going to a fitness business conference back in 2017. And even then, I think the numbers that they had of how many Americans were on some form of Periodized training routine, or at least consistently going to the gym on their own with a trainer using classes, whatever, it was about 13%. And when they, I think the parameters for what was qualified as consistent was something around being able to commit to this three, four times a week, every week. And to realize it was that low, that was a big wake up call for me because as a trainer, I was kind of shocked at the way exercise or movement was taught and how it continued to be taught in the same way. And when I heard that statistic, I considered, well, what do we have to do as professionals in the industry to take care of people? And at what point have we missed the boat? At what point are we feeding into dialogues and assumptions around what people want that are incorrect or inadvertently pushing people into regimes that are not sustainable and don't actually inspire them to be connected to their bodies and themselves? And what do we have to do in the industry to change that when this industry was really born out of the innovation of the internet and technology and suddenly we all sort of got divorced from the natural movement we used to have for survival. And so now exercise is a thing where it didn't used to be and how can we position it so that it feels more natural and intuitive for people to tap into rather than restrictive, difficult, and like this whole other set of challenges people have to overcome to get there.
0: You raised some brilliant points there. And I think what we, as professionals and leaders in this industry, we need to do is we have to push through the dogma that is within the fitness industry. And so much of it is delivered in such a way that begs people the question, am I capable of being able to thrust myself into a situation where i may not be successful because intuitively like you said they're not going to be able to jump into a group exercise class and do it do their form of high intensity steady state training that is being programmed now they see all the exercise physiology research that says high intensity interval training is really good and healthy for you but then they go and they program it incorrectly And they structure it into a particular class that gets somebody's ass whooped for 45 to 55 minutes straight. And then we wonder why these people don't ever come back. And so notwithstanding from a behavioral standpoint, most people aren't even ready to even take that step to even walk through those doors. So we need to meet people where they need to be met. And the Mm -hmm. easiest way that we can do that is within the environment that they feel most comfortable, because the gym is not the environment that they feel most comfortable. If it was, to your point, we would have far more than 13% of the American population engaging in regular physical activity in an environment that dictates it. And I believe only 10% of those 13% are actually following anything structured. Yes. Or having some sort of guidance with a professional.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, and it's probably even less than that. And now, knowing that those environments are being pulled away from us through COVID nineteen, you know, numbers are even going to drop further unless we find a way to engage people at home. And that's what we've done is we've tried to find ways to engage people at, w- at home, find ways to engage people at their workplace, places that they're going to spend the vast majority of their time, and be able to build a sustainable system that will allow their body to recover, it will allow their body to be met with a movement sequence that will foster long term sustainability in their health. Because we're not talking about fitness, we're talking about health. And we need to start to eliminate those two as two different spectrums. Because Mm -hmm. you can be really fit and not healthy. Right? We see it with with the best athletes in the world, the best competitors in the world, they're not healthy. That's why they don't have a very long life expectancy. And when I stand up and explain this to people in presentations, they have a heart, they, they're absolutely blown away with the fact that the uh, average lifespan for an NFL offensive lineman is 55 years old, mm. right? The average lifespan for a competitive marathon runner when they start in their 40s is only 55.
3: Mm. So
0: when you start to see these really challenging things that are happening to people's long-term health, they're doing it in a pursuit that might gratify them at that time, but they're not looking at scaling it so that they can do this for a lifetime. And that's where we've tried to come in from a microdosing standpoint is how do we deliver that same experience in a shorter, more consistent way so that you get the overall health benefits mechanically, metabolically, neurologically, and probably most importantly, at the cellular level.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's this illusion that has been created with fitness where it's become all about the aesthetics and the carrot being dangled saying, if you get the aesthetics, then you're healthy, right? And then everything falls into place. You feel confident. You feel great. But usually being able to achieve these aesthetics to begin with, especially what's been idealized in the media and, you know, in TV and movies, Th- those are far from healthy, like you said. There's, they've actually come at great cost, not just in terms of people's day-to-day and having to restrict and self-sacrifice so much of what allows them to be a fully fleshed out, inspired, happy, fulfilled human, but even at a cellular and metabolic level. And this is the scary thing because I can totally relate with you, John. I've had conversations with people about this, some of the dangers of a lot of what we're seeing in high-intensity interval training. And what people don't realize is, is that in trying to rush towards these aesthetic goals and trying to skip all these intermediate steps of connecting with their body in the meantime they're actually shaving off years of their life. They're actually stressing out their cellular capacity on the base level every single day with every one of these manipulations that they're trying to do to create accelerated results. And if you sit back and think about it for a second, it's like, well, was getting that six pack really worth potentially shaving off years of your life? And then what you have to do to be able to maintain it (laughs) that comes at even greater cost. And this is something that doesn't get fleshed out a lot. And as a professional, I have to say, it's very scary.
0: Yeah, it is really scary. Because, you know, how many times have you heard somebody say, Oh, look at how fit that person is, right? They must be in great shape. And well, shape for what is really the question. I mean, there's There's offensive linemen in the NFL that pack on lots of weight because it makes them more effective at their job. And then there's two routes you can go when you finish your playing career, which by average is about two or three years. (laughs) So you work that hard to get to that level. And then your average career is only that long. You have to now teach your body to be able to not want to crave the amount of calories required to maintain that weight. And you have to lose a lot of weight if you want to have a long, healthy life. So there becomes this roller coaster that where we think performance is the highest peak of anything that we could possibly do. Right. Mm. And that's just not true. I was victim of it for many years up until my mid thirties, where I was still competing in sport and then decided to compete in Olympic weightlifting. at I think it was like 35 when I started doing that. So all my life I'd been competing in sport. And now that I'm 44, I'm feeling the effects of living a life full of competition. And ironically, I was never really in pain or had any discomfort until I started doing stuff more competitively in the gym. You know, Mm -hmm. the more variety I did in all different types of sports, which being from Canada is a luxury because you can't play hockey in the summertime, or at least you shouldn't. You can't play baseball in the winter, which would be a really weird sport to play. But (laughs) um, it gives you the opportunity to do lots of different stuff. Which, as mm. we know, is the key to health. But mm. as soon as you become trying to do things more and more specific, it becomes the paradox. That means the more and more unhealthy you become. And just last night, actually, I was um, doing my weekly small dose. It's about seven minutes of high intensity, steady state activity, pushing a sled while sprinting. It's like the hardest thing I've ever done in my life by far. And it's the most challenging. And it's important to do it, just not do it all day long every day mm. and this guy that was about seven years old pulls up rays. i'm finishing my last set and i'm absolutely dying and he wants to engage in a conversation about health while he he's on a bike right <laughs> and he's like did you make that sled i'm like no no i i bought it here's where i got it. i got it out of texas i start telling him all about it he goes mm. what does it do he goes is it for legs i said <laughs> how much time do you have because we can unpack this quite quite a ways like my background's in exercise physiology he goes oh it is well tell me about it right and so we got engage in this really cool conversation i'm not going to bore you with the details of what the sled push does metabolically mechanically s- cellularly anything like that i didn't bore him with that but he said something very powerful to me he goes yeah you know i'm going to be 74 next month and i just kind of do like Whatever I kind of feel like doing, you know, I, I ride my bike, I go for a walk, I'll walk over to the basketball court and shoot some hoops. And I was like, "See, that's an intuitive, intuitive approach to health." He mm-hmm. looks super healthy. He says, "He says I do about thirty miles on my bike every day, but it's not hard. I just wander around because I got nothing else to do. I'm retired, so I just ride around and say hi to people and stuff like that." I was like, "That's just genius." And then he goes to tell me because now I'm in interested. I'm like, "Well." how many times have you had to change the tires on your bike? He's like, well, probably 20 times. I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, I put like 100,000 miles on this bike. I was like, wow, that's impressive. So, you know, like here's someone that has done it in short bouts, you know, frequently Mm -hmm. throughout the day. I just park my bike, get on my bike, park my bike, get on my bike, go for a walk, do all these things. But he derived from that not from going to have to go see a coach or be programmed or do this. He did it intuitively because that's what engages him as a human being. And I thought that was really cool that that just happened, you know, had that conversation with a stranger last night over something like that, you know?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I've had this conversation so many times with people. It's like a broken record, but I think we have so many options to us when it comes to being active in our bodies, and it goes so far beyond fitness and exercise. Think fitness and exercise are kind of a means to deal with the problem of not being in movement enough, but when they have a completely eclipsed movement in general, which was meant to sort of be an innately expressive and intuitive experience, right? It's, It's a way to be in your body and feel the thrill of Mm -hmm. having a body and that happens differently for everybody and it shape shifts and changes throughout your whole life. So what fed you when you were in your twenties may not be the thing that lights you up now in your forties and that's okay. And it might still be the same. It may not, but I I do see that one of these flaws in fitness has been trying to get people to find that magic system and then adhere to that system Mm -hmm. at all costs.
3: Right.
0: Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's really powerful what you said, because if, if we unpack the actual anthropology of it all, we would realize that you know our species evolved to be at a level that would be primarily utilitarian in survival. And over time, the more we came together as cultures of people or tribes or bands or clans, or wherever whatever region of the world that you were in, dance and expression and all those things came together to unite a particular community or culture. And that's the expressive nature of it. Um, I I feel we still have that. I think the social um, connection that binds people together in fitness and in health is still there. You see it in Many groups from walking groups to hiking groups to dance groups to, mm-hmm. um, you know, CrossFit has done an amazing job in terms of what they've built in their community. So I think that's inherent in human beings that we use movement to galvanize and, and put a culture together.
3: Mm.
0: I think me- from a mechanistic standpoint, and what's happening at, and we deal a lot with the corporate level, is trying to engage people in movement. In that space has been difficult because of our preconceived belief systems on what work has to be mm. like, sit down, don't move, type, do all your stuff, and then you're free to go. And we might yeah. give you a break here and there, and that's not what we evolved to do. Like, movement was spontaneous if you know you're taking a rest and a dinosaur comes around the corner, you got to get up and run. Now I know that actually didn't happen, but it was just for a joke. Um, I don't want the listeners out going there. I don't know if he knows his timelines very well. Um, Let's say it's a big animal and Mm. and it's hungry and spontaneously you need to be able to go from zero to 160 that fast. You had the capacity to be able to do that. In today's Mm. day and age, I don't think we allow for freedom of movement in the workspace. We don't allow for freedom of movement at school. We don't allow for freedom of movement. You know, everything has been driven around. Sit there, do what we tell you. You're not allowed to move until you hear the bell go. Or the work bell where you can, you hear the alarm go off and you can slide down your dinosaur and go home. Like Fred Flintstone. And so... I think the challenge that w- we have to embark on is changing the whole culture around movement in the workspace, in school, in all our environments, and realize that movement is fundamental to health. And so you cannot be productive at work if you're not healthy.
3: It's just yeah. that
0: simple. If you have injuries, like if you've hurt your back, and then the first choice that they do for, to keep you at work is to sit you in a chair all day long and do modify, not even modified work, like you're now in on desk duty, but you are labor, that's the worst possible thing you could do for somebody with a back injury. Mm. So we're not thinking about what role movement has on our capacity to be able to heal, but not only our capacity to be able to function as human beings. And that is a massive thing that we need to work on. And that's what Part of the things that we're trying to embark on right now is getting folks to realize that movement needs, is a crucial step to health and that it needs to be involved in all of our environments more frequently throughout the day. And that work culture needs to change immediately because what we're currently doing is is very unhealthy for our folks and is going to have long-term health consequences, as long-term business consequences, not only to productivity, but to having to pay out benefits to people that are not healthy and not allow or and companies to be less profitable as a result.
1: So it's also political and economic, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, as you're talking about this, something I realize is movement is not prioritized. Like we understand it's important. It's why doctors tell you your whole life, you know, Exercise regularly. Like, that's an important part of health, but it's not actually prioritized. And you see that awareness proliferate into work, into social situations, almost everywhere, right? Aside from the gym, aside from that prescribed dosage. And something that's really fascinating about seven movements is you guys have finally actually been able to create movement prescription and to get doctors to actually prescribe your programs to people. And I'd be curious to learn more about some of what you've seen happen, switching the conversation of movement rather than just exercise regularly uh, to then be positioned as a prescription coming from a doctor to handle a major issue.
2: Yeah, I mean, the you both just talked about the major challenges from from a culture standpoint and it, it's really twofold it's the the workplaces as john said people it's sit down we work and then if we start talking about moving in places we traditionally don't move or exercising in places we people's minds immediately go well i got fit 60 minute high intensity workout into the middle of like my day three or four times a day and um that's when we have to educate a little bit about the idea of micro dosing and how practical it can be to fit into various environments that we experience every day and that's something we've been talking to physicians here in canada about from from a uh, perspective of prescribing an exercise program versus saying hey just go re- get more exercise you need to move more uh, because mm. and and sometimes that's go join a gym and as we know, uh, we already talked about the statistics. It doesn't work, flat out. Does not work for eighty to ninety percent of the population. So what's interesting in having these conversations around and microdosing and, and educating not just the the public that this is this is a tool in your toolbox that you can use to fit more movement into your day. From a physician standpoint, from what we've heard, is the the interest is that, hey, there, here's something I can give to a patient who needs to move more that's practical. It builds some movement confidence in them so then maybe they'll go participate in more movement if, if they actually feel better when they move. And it's, it's easy to fit into their day. So I think from just a pure practical standpoint, the idea of microdosing is very appealing to from a prescription standpoint it's something we've been able to figure out here in canada and a couple of provinces in, in partnering with uh, some of our partners and hopefully something we can bring down into the united states as well i'm not sure john if you have anything to add to that one no i think
0: you, uh, you said it perfectly our, our biggest challenge has been in shaping other people's behavior Mm. around that. And so, and that usually comes from the top down. So whatever organization you're a part of, whether it's the doctor prescribing it, or you have a manager or a department that our human resources department, usually they report to someone else, if they don't value that above the human resources department, then it becomes a challenge in developing. Notwithstanding, it becomes a real challenge to create a habit around frequent bouts of movement. And usually that requires a click, that requires a leader, that requires the first follower, as Simon Sinek once said, right? Like the the, the most important person in creating a uh, revolution is not the person that starts it, but the first person that follows it, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. what you need is you need, you need a group of a support group around you to want to embark on any kind of change. And then you have to spend time with that change. So part of our prescription has been, well, if the average time to really enforce that, or not enforce, sorry, ensue a habit that becomes not only rewarding, but becomes routine Mm -hmm. um, is about 66 days. So Mm. a lot of our prescriptions are driven around the idea of moving people frequently as close as we can to 66 days where it becomes a habit and then we give them a new prescription mm. and so all our prescriptions are driven around let's get you started let's get you through the first little bit of time that makes people feel like okay this isn't too bad right and so our fresh start program is only 21 days and so the mm. idea of it is just can you sustain this for a short period of time and if you can great you're onto the new prescription and so what we do is you're renewing your prescription frequently throughout throughout a period of time so that by the time you get through all those prescriptions they ladder up from 66 to 99 because we're a hockey mm. fan we love <laughs> mario lemieux and wayne Gretzky, so that's why we structured it that way but when you get through that length of time what you realize that wow 99 days that wasn't that hard i'm on day 99 of my fourth program right now you don't really think about it when you're tracking it daily right but if you take your dosages frequently throughout the day, that by the time the 99 days comes up, you're like, oh, it's not a big deal. I'll take the next one. And then what happens is it just becomes this down downhill of snowball growing into this larger boulder of snow that has so much momentum that it just becomes a part of everyone's life and part of their cu- culture. And so the trick is going to be is for, for it to start snowing. <laughs> we, we need it, we need to get it to snow, which I'm in Florida, so it's impossible. But um, we need to get it to snow so we can build a snowball, and so that it can turn into a massive boulder. And so that's what we've been lucky to be able to do: is start small with lots of groups that are really excited about doing this, and and then it just kind of gets out of control. Hopefully, that it will overtake uh, North America and the rest of the world, because now we know everybody needs it more than it more than ever now. Not just because of inactivity, but because of our capacity to be able to become more resilient is needed more than ever now that COVID-19 is here.
1: I am briefly interrupting this interview to announce that we are thrilled to have launched Evolna's new on-demand app, where you have unlimited access to all of our intuitive movement exercises, workouts, and meditations designed to help you become the expert of your body while creating a more fulfilling relationship with yourself. We're offering a special discount. The first month trial is only $1. Sign up through our link in the show notes and include checkout code EVOLNA1 to redeem the offer. Now, back to the interview. Well, now that we've sort of been talking a little bit more about some of the cultural implications and we've alluded to the greater implications that this has, not just in terms of well-being, but also on like our productivity, our longevity, even like politics and economics as like the countries we are a part of, uh, what is some of the hard science uh, pointing to with like the difference between microdosing and traditional exercise. I know Dan mentioned that like there have been some very specific findings that have come out in recent years that have been instrumental to helping people reframe their understanding of why switching their relationship to exercise or movement this way is important.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think the biggest one, uh, and I, I sort of mentioned it in passing earlier was and I can't remember where the study came out of, so maybe we can link to that in some of the posts.
1: We'll link to it. <laughs> uh,
2: but but the big one was that the the idea that from a long term health perspective, if you aren't moving frequently throughout the day, that you're going to have uh, the same challenges if you exercise or don't exercise before or after at that end of that real mm. prolonged period. So the best like. For example, if you're someone who doesn't move at all and works sitting down and then doesn't move at all in the evening, you're going to have the exact same health outcomes as someone who maybe does a block exercise in the morning, doesn't move at all for 10 hours, doesn't move at all at night, even though they still fit that 45-minute or 60-minute session in the morning. The long-term health outcomes are going to be the same, Mm. Um, and that was pretty stunning and john i don't know if you can add to this i think you understand the the study a little bit more in depth than me but that was the general outcome that that was the most surprising i think to most folks
1: and well that that sort of like throws everything up on its head right. that you know making that effort to put in that intense dosage in some ways, is less relevant than putting in the micro doses throughout the day. That those are actually where the change is made. That is where the health is built, and that is where your longevity is sustained.
0: Yes, one hundred percent. That's yeah. exactly
3: it. Yeah.
0: And that's why we've you know we've really rallied behind the idea of micro dosing and doing things more frequently throughout the day and having structure. If you need to improve performance, is important. So whatever your performance might be, whether it be sport or recreational activity, having that structure in there is important. But now we got to bolt on frequent activity throughout the day so that you can enhance your performance. But probably most importantly, double down on your recovery,
3: right? Mm. Because as
0: we know, when we sit here for an hour at at a time, like we'll finish this podcast and I'll get up and I'll have to have, go mobilize. Just sitting in one particular position for too long just crushes me, right? <laughs> me too. <laughs> most, right. And so all us active people are, understand that, right? Oh. But people that have become, that have succumbed to this environment that that allows them to be stagnant for a long period of time and that becomes their normal, to do the opposite is abnormal. Yeah. Right? And so what we're trying to facilitate through the science and really delivering that science in a way that is sustainable and not only acceptable, but doable. Practical, accessible. I would accessible, say. yeah, um, Allows people now the, the freedom to understand that health can be within their own grasp in a very simple way. And the way we deliver it is we deliver it, on our platform that is just monkey see monkey do you Mm. do not have to be an expert in movement to do this all you have to have is a piece of technology that's going to show a video right of me or some of our other brilliant coaches just delivering this education and delivering a movement sequence you just follow along so Mm. that's what we call monkey see monkey do you just basically have to mimic which is one of the most brilliant things that we have in the brain is the capacity to uh, mirror one another and just follow along. And so by doing that frequently now gives people the opportunity to have the accessibility and the scalability and the availability to be able to do it when they want, when they, how they want and for their own personal reasons. And so that i think is the thing that gets me most excited about the possibility and the scalability of what we can do and what we can create mm. um, because as some of my mentors have always said you keep the smarts underneath the table deliver what's most relevant to that individual and just let them participate with you and so mm. that's
3: what we've delivered.
1: as you bring up mimicry i remember learning it was actually at a dance intensive that I did in Montreal, one of the teachers there was talking about the phenomena in the brain of how when you watch something, your brain is actually already wiring how to do that movement internally. It's creating the the neural network so that you can complete it in your body even without trying it, just by observing it. And I wanted to bring that up here because I think if our listeners know that just by watching on some level your body is priming itself to do that thing is it if that's a very important thing to let marinate because i see a lot of people watch somebody do something and this phenomena is actually automatically happening but because people are not as comfortable with their bodies or they're afraid of looking stupid or getting it wrong or injuring themselves people hold back and don't allow themselves that opportunity to try but in fact it's part of how we exist in the world. And it's so innate and automatic that whenever we're watching movement, we're priming ourselves to be able to do it. So I wanted to bring that up just as like a little opportunity to help inspire people to know that even if you may not get it right, there's a part of you that's getting ready and wants to be able to do the thing it's watching.
0: Right. Yeah. the original study, I think, came from by accident, actually, as they were studying uh, the, the behavior and reward systems of the brain that were coming from uh, monkeys when they would eat peanuts. And I believe they still had, you know, some of the brain activity sensors on, on the monkey. And when one of the researchers just decided, saw a peanut, and he went and grabbed it and went to eat it, just the action of him eating it hit the same brain centers on the monkey when the monkey was actually eating it. And that's Mm -hmm. what led them to the concept of mirror neurons, right? Mm -hmm. And how those neural networks actually get built in the brain. And that's why we have the same responses when we go out to eat or when you decide to engage in an activity or even watch an activity that you love. I don't know how many times, Dan, you've gone to watch a hockey game and been thrust into this dreamlike sequence of seeing yourself out on the ice with the with the NHL players. At least, I have that dream every time I go to a hockey game. That they call me and go, "Hey, John, a couple of guys are went down. Can you go grab your gear? We need you. We'll sign you to a one day contract." I'm like, "Yeah, I'll just. I'm three minutes from the rink. No worries. let's go do it." You know. And so, what's cool about it is that that becomes, if you truly love and have a passion for a particular activity, the brain will map itself to i want to go do that right right here and now and mm. so what we want to try to convey is that when you do particular activities that you have a passion for and a love for then you are going to adhere to that activity and any activity when it becomes something that you truly love and it, so it kind of comes full circle back around to our our original inspiration for this company was Dan's grandma she just mm. loves gardening but wants to be able to be sustain her ability to garden for long periods of time right
3: mm-hmm. and
0: so that that was like the kind of your our passion is movement and trying to connect that movement piece to what people love is really what we're trying to do and do it in a way that people can just kind of grab grab little bits of it at a time so that they know that they can go do the things that they love doing
1: mm. yeah well you know one of the paradoxes i think we've sort of highlighted here today is the paradox of you know trying to get those quick results that most people think equate to health that they're kind of beating themselves up to get versus actively practicing forms that allow for longevity and i i will never forget when i first began as a trainer the intake form had this question at the bottom and after we highlighted all the goals all the health stuff uh, the question was would you prefer results that lo- last for a lifetime but may be slow to attain? Or do you prefer fast results that you may not be able to maintain? And every single person who I asked that question to always wanted those r- results that could last a lifetime but might be slow to attain. Mm. And it's, an, it's a really strange paradox because when you, when you la- lay it out for people, they know that longevity is built slowly over time, right? And it is in these small moments over time, but there seems to be a break because when they're actively making decisions that are ultimately influencing their longevity, they're not operating from that standpoint. It's like the go, you know, and even what you mentioned about how your programs are outlined, you outline them in like 21, 60, 90 some days. And the idea is, is that by the time those, you know, two to three months are done, that person has ingrained a habit and it feels easy. But a lot of how we are selecting our movement and exercise protocol, it's all about like, I got to just like reinvent myself overnight, you know, so I'm going to do the hour every day, and then I'm going to completely change my diet. And of course, that always falls through within less than a week for most people, because it's intense it's unsustainable and also it doesn't deliver them that influx of joy that we're talking about being so essential to creating a sustainable practice so this was a very long-winded way of asking that but what do you think are some ways we can actually begin to shift and close the gap on this paradox
2: it's it's a really great question this is one of the things that frustrates me the most probably and it's the the fitness industry has just done an amazing job of selling a lifestyle and results that appeal to someone you know in the moment where, like I want to look like that person or I, I want to be able to do that backflip off a wall or whatever it is that they're they're selling to them so I mean, it's really why when John and I talked about seven movements, we really wanted to distance ourselves from the idea of fitness was for that very reason, because we really want to start talking about health. So I think some of the solution to this is for fitness professionals and others to start talking about health a lot more, a lot more. Uh, And especially when we have people in front of us, whether it be presentations or coaching one on one we're hammering the idea of health versus the idea of quick results, which I mean, it can be more challenging because sometimes quick results are sexy and they're appealing to a lot of people. But we also have to remember they're, they're sexy and appealing to the 10 to 20% of people who are already participating in this stuff. And we're missing out on 80% of the population. So I really wish and hope that not just the fitness industry, but the whole industry as a whole opens its eyes that there is this whole giant market of people that need their help because the folks within that space have ideas and they have the education and can give people the tools to better health. But we just need to start banging the drum a lot harder, I feel like it's just, and we haven't been doing it and it's because it's been easy the other way. it's it's much harder to make a commercial pitch to the current fitness audience centered around health than it is to show a bunch of really sexy people jumping up and down with six-pack abs and booties like it's just it's harder but it's something that we need to take on
1: the irony is is the thing people actually are chasing when they're chasing those aesthetic goals when they're looking for the six pack and like the booty buster workouts because they want to look good is people think looking good equates to feeling good. Mm-hmm. They think looking good makes me attractive not just to like potential romantic you know partners or or even to like prospective job oper- like if i'm attractive everything is fixed. and they're what people are really chipping away at is a deeper level of insecurity within themselves. And it's a deeper level of not feeling at home in their bodies that they're trying to fill with this story. But there so often is the fallout. And I've been on this side of the equation multiple times in my life. I think almost everyone has where you go after those aesthetic results, you achieve them and you still feel insecure. You still feel hollow. I remember dropping my my fat mass percentage like down to below 13%. And it was probably one of the times in my life when I felt the worst about myself. And I was convinced that I just had to drop more. If I dropped another 2% in body fat, then I would feel better. Right. And, and when I was recognizing this, you know, being a professional in the industry, I was a trainer at the time, I was thinking, well, this is, this is a crock of shit. (laughs) I mean, like, Not only was I on the verge of losing my period, but I was on the verge of infertility. I was on the verge of hyperthyroidism. And thank goodness I had a a wonderful health practitioner I was working with at the time when she looked at my blood work. It wasn't just like, what's wrong now? It was like, oh, these numbers are indicators that, you know, in a few years, you may not be able to have children. You may be dependent on drugs for the rest of your life. And I was 25 at the time. So it was a big wake up call. And And like what you said about having to talk about health, I think that's so important because really that's what people are chasing. They want to feel awake when they get up in the morning. They want to feel excited to do the things that they want to do. They want to feel productive and competent and respected and appreciated. And that does not happen unless we foster that relationship with our bodies. And movement, like John said, it has such tremendous potential as a restore a restorative practice, a healing practice as a way to really allow ourselves to amplify the best aspects of ourselves, not just physical, but mental and emotional as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's so, so valuable what you said, Marie. And the challenge that we're having is that we put so much faith into industries that really haven't got it right yet and so the fitness industry isn't about health and your doctor has no background in health right so the the two places that we go to are skewed in two different perspectives doctor they view everything from a pathology standpoint
3: mm-hmm. right what's so wrong
0: sickness, what's wrong with you right every diagnostics gonna be driven around Let's see where you are currently compared to the normal. And I guarantee we're going to focus on the shitty stuff, right?
3: Mm-hmm. The fitness
0: industry is going to be driven around results, immediate change. We're going to get you in as many programs as possible and get you to adhere to a contract over time that makes you buy into this short-term vision or change. So mm-hmm. everything that the fitness industry has ever grown to be, in terms of a business is flawed in my opinion and I've been in massive chains that still look at this today still look at this through this same vision and nothing could be a better barometer for what's going wrong than the fact that the the average career expectancy of a professional in the fitness environment in the fitness world is less than five years in fact the most often it's six months to a year is the length of time that somebody has a job in the fitness industry as a personal trainer. Mm. So if you think about if we're always driven towards the short term, right. And then clients are going to get their short term result and then they're going to leave. And then the personal trainer has to find a new client and they have to find a new client. They have to find a new client and have to find a Mm. new client before long that grind of finding more clients over and over and over again is not sustainable for their career as well. Mm. But what do we do at the educational level? We teach them to, to understand biomechanics, physiology, all that things for the athletes. So think about every, every single exercise physiology class you ever took to understand the adaptations that happen for exercise. And most of the research studies are driven around the college age population. Yeah. Right. And so what we have to do is there needs to be a fundamental shift at the educational level, which thankfully I'm involved with an amazing organization that you know of called the Institute of Motion, where we educate coaches on how to think differently about everything that they've once learned.
3: Mm.
0: And then we need to shift this into the business practices of the fitness industry. Mm -hmm. Because if we currently keep trying to operate by membership sales, we already know that in the wake of COVID, that's not going to happen anymore. So we need to start thinking differently about how we actually practice within the fitness industry and how we need to make a shift from the dog or from fitness into health. And it isn't Mm -hmm. until those big groups, so the medical industry and the fitness industry, decide to start to embrace health that we're actually going to make any actual change because the eighty to ninety percent of the people that aren't using fitness and being driven towards the doctor is not sustainable. It's not just yeah. sustainable for our governments. It's not sustainable for our workplaces. It's not sustainable for our families. And this is the the cultural shift that needs to happen in order for us to be able to actually move forward. And I think it's incumbent on us leaders to continue to keep pushing that narrative. And letting them know that things need to change. And your ways of operating need to evolve. And it, your ways of programming need to vastly improve. <laughs> and your ways to be able to capture an audience and create environments that make it comfortable for them to be able to sustain healthy practices and movement needs to be your sole core value, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, one of my biggest pain points as a trainer was actually the medical industry right like because exactly what you highlighted nobody's focused on health and and then there's assumptions around what's happening in both sides of this equation so as a trainer i always wanted to get in touch with doctors that my clients were seeing for whatever they were seeing to like know more of what was happening but a client says oh you know i work with a trainer to their doctor and the doctor has a very specific idea of what's happening in that session And if for anybody who's ever witnessed me train, you know, both as a client or as an outsider, nothing of what I do looks anything familiar to like what typical training is. It is, it is so far outside of that spectrum. There isn't really a word for it. So I always found it really frustrating knowing how much movement can do for health and being such a health oriented movement practitioner and really devoting myself to, being the best I could be and challenging myself in as many ways as I could to then sort of be thrown into a box or to have my client get the information of like, you shouldn't work with your trainer. You know, you need to stop working with your trainer. It's too aggressive for you. Meanwhile, all we've been doing are like really gentle, soft movement interventions to like stimulate blood flow and get a little lymphatic drainage going and to like encourage the system to remember it can be moving without pain. That was that was always very frustrating for me. And and for me that's sort of been where my head's been at especially in COVID of like this is our opportunity. We're watching the fitness industry as we knew it kind of self implode and have to reorganize. We're also watching healthcare, especially in the United States, kind of self implode and we'll see what happens after November. <laughs> I mean this will be airing in November so we'll know, but there I think there's just so much opportunity we have here in a, in the biggest way we've had in a long time to really start positioning both of these industries that were designed initially for health and then actually reinvent them so they are centered on health.
2: That's right. And perfectly said. Yeah. Love that.
1: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I could talk to you guys forever. <laughs> I feel like we have another potential... Um, interview waiting for us to get a little deeper into some of this. But uh, as we wrap things up here, I think one thing I'd like to hear from both of you is in context of everything we've talked about, are there any words of wisdom you'd like to leave our audience members with, something that they can reflect on or actively implement in the wake of this conversation?
2: Yeah, I'll go first, John. Um, I think my advice uh, to anyone seeking to get on a path to long-term health, it is quite simple. It's it's go and try as many activities as you can, and find one or many that you fall in love with, and then supplement it with microdosing of movement throughout the day. And if you can make those microdoses effective and smart by uh, following some of the genius programming that. People like Marie and John have put together. You're going to be uh, ahead of the curve on that, and I think if folks can do that, they're they're going to be well on their way to to long term health.
0: Yeah, Dan. As always, you always steal my ideas, <laughs> so I had to go first.
3: <laughs> that's why you partner. Uh, <laughs> you
0: no, know, I mean that's number one. I mean you. The only way you can create a sustainable practice around movement as a mechanism to long-term health is to do things that you love. The, the one thing that I've learned that I always kind of thought was kind of hoity-toity, and I know what I'm doing, I don't actually need to be doing this, is doing something as simple as journaling. And we've started to implement that as a kind of like a self-reflection of what we are experiencing in our lives. And how movement plays a role in it, and reflecting back on that, and actually putting pen to paper and writing it down, mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, I've finished. You know, today is my last day of my fourth ninety-nine day journey. So I did four mm-hmm. Wayne Gretzky's, and so uh, at the end of every day, I actually write down exactly what I did that day, what my tolerance for exercise was. So how was I feeling? right? When I woke up that day, did I get an adequate amount of sleep? What was my readiness or mentally, physically, emotionally? How was I ready to be able to do a bout of exercise that day or, or about a bout of movement that day? Then I got to write down what did I do that day and what did I really love about what I did that day, right? Mm. And just from writing that down for almost 400 straight days, my health is in a completely different place than it was at this time last year Hmm. and something as simple as just being involved in the process but then reflecting upon that process has been a very powerful tool for me and being consistent at it right Hmm. you know i think consistency trumps intensity every time out if you can do those small little bouts and i don't really know if we mentioned what that microdose for us it is but for us it's as small as seven minutes We do seven movements in seven minutes. And if I do that frequently throughout the day and I write that down on what I did and reward myself with something that I really enjoy as a result of it, maybe a cup of coffee or whatever has that really picks you up and gets you excited about and you can really love and crave, relish that and reward yourself with it. Because whether you have a piece of cake every single day, if you negate that with frequent movement all throughout the day. Well, what's going to happen is your biochemistry is going to change for the better. There's going to be way more wins than losses. And well, who doesn't like cake?
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm actually more of
0: a pie guy. I should have used pie. As a, <laughs> I'm more a pie versus cake guy. but
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, what you mentioned about checking in with yourself. So I think that the two pieces of advice that resonated for me the most strongly is like, Find something that you enjoy doing. So allow yourself to be curious, allow yourself to explore and allow yourself to feed what feels good. This is like one of my personal mantras as well. And then, you know, to give yourself the space to connect and reflect. You know, something I do um, with my movement practices is I sort of begin and end with a body scan every time. And that's what we layer in our programming at Evolna. We have these meditations that are actually very short, but they're they're not meant to be the big, you know, jumping over the obstacle of like having to like completely erase all thoughts. It's meant to be like, well, what sensations are going on in my body? How does that feel? What emotions are at play right now? What thoughts are running around? And when you do that before and after, you can always see that something changes. And it's always better than where you started out. It might just be a little bit some days. Some days it's like kablamo, it's completely out of this world. But you know, journaling is another way to do that. And it's a one of my favorite ways to connect to my movement practice as well. So I love that you brought that forward because I think we need to be combining more of our reflective awareness around what we're doing with movement instead of just mindlessly moving. That's a huge part of changing this equation. So we're not just always going for those aesthetic illusions and we're actually connecting to our health in the unique makeup of who we are, in the unique context of the times we're in and all the factors we may be negotiating in our lives at that moment.
0: So if you do seven minutes of... Meditate, meditative body scans over that time. Does it aggregate up to the part where I will now become a master of the mystical arts and like Doctor yes. Strange? <laughs> <laughs> That's the case. I, I mean, I'm in. I'm doing that starting today.
1: It actually, you know, it does. Um, <laughs> awesome. I, I, I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but one of my, I mean, you guys know this because, you know, hey, audience, we're partnering for some programming of plus seven movements, and we're very excited about it. But one of my personal explorations has been using my meditation technique in conjunction with how i feel in my body so instead of like trying to go out go deeper in to use it to change the emotions that i'm noticing are coming up automatically that I don't want to participate in. So the experiment I've run this month has been with anxiety and stress. And I use those interchangeably because for me, they they come in together. But whenever I catch myself like going into an anxiety-driven spiral, I, the second I'm aware of it, I step back as soon as I can and I apply this tool of just like breathing into my body and trying to use a little bit of movement if I need to change it. So, yeah, that seven minute microdose. And then I come back. And of course, some days it's like I completely let it go. Sometimes I don't. But I can tell cumulatively who I am now versus who I was at the beginning of October are two entirely different people.
2: Wow, it's powerful. Great.
1: Yeah, very exciting. All right, um, well, with, with that being said, <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys so much for coming on with us today. It was such a pleasure to be able to have this conversation and it's one that's really important and near and dear to my heart. So I thank you.
0: Thank you for having
1: us. Thank you for tuning in with us today. You can find contact information and all references made during the show in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and spread the love by sharing with family and friends. If you want to learn more or would like additional support in your movement relationship, head to our website at Evolna.com. Be gentle, be generous, and be good to yourself, and have a beautiful day.